consumers have so much more choice, more information, and therefore more power than they ever had before. So they're not going to be fooled, to put it simply. You know, I think the days of like, let's tell a funny story and hope people associate it with our brand are over. From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, the head of Lift Labs, and today's guest, Emily Hayward, the co-founder and chief brand officer of Red Antler, the branding and marketing company for startups and new ventures. Emily's book, Obsessed, Building a Brand People Love from Day One, explains how brands like Allbirds, Casper, and Sweetgreen successfully built a devoted following right out of the gate. Inc. Magazine named Emily one of the most important entrepreneurs of the decade, and she was selected as one of Entrepreneur Magazine's most powerful women of 2019. In this episode, Emily and I discuss the importance of meaningful branding that's authentic and carried through in values throughout all levels of a company. She'll share tips on how entrepreneurs can stand out in today's ultra-competitive startup landscape. All that and more with Emily Hayward, now on Ideas Elevated. So uh, Lift Labs and our startup engagement programs at Comcast and VCU exist to support startup founders. And so many in our audience are entrepreneurs. So we'd actually love to hear your own founder story. How did Red Antler come about? What was your career path and your path for starting your own company? And uh, what does the team focus on day to day? Yeah, absolutely. I think all those things are connected. Um, so rewinding to the start of my career, I began working in advertising and I was working at big global agencies on big global brands doing big national TV campaigns. And I learned a ton about what it means to think about your target audience and be aware of their needs and tap into them through communications, through creative. But I started to grow frustrated that we were really being asked to come up with new things to say about many times old products that hadn't really evolved, that weren't really responding to the needs and demands of the modern consumer. And I felt like we were too far downstream to really make a difference. You know, we were able to come up with new campaigns, but we couldn't affect the products themselves. And in the meantime, around me, um, this was around 2006, the New York startup scene was just getting going. We were sort of entering this second wave of tech innovation. And I was meeting with all these founders who had these incredible ideas for their businesses and were thinking through all of these important ways to transform categories and deliver more value, but they didn't know what it meant to build a brand. And I realized, along with my co-founder, that we had an opportunity to take the skills we had learned working with traditional brands and apply them to actually launching the businesses that we were excited to see in the world. So in 2007, we started Red Antler and our goal was to be really the first creative services company that was focused on pre-launch startups. You know, at the time, the ethos was very much about the lean startup, get out there, test your rate of success, worry about brand later. That's something only big companies needed to be thinking about. And we felt very strongly that having brand baked into your business from the beginning would be a competitive differentiation and would set these businesses up for stronger, greater growth. So um, that's how we started the company. And in terms of what the team focuses on today, you know, half of our business is still pre-launch. So we've been around 13 years, but we're still very much focused 
on partnering with entrepreneurs and helping them think about, you know, how brands can be a driver of business growth. Amazing. And uh, I felt a very personal connection to your story coming out of marketing communications myself. I also helped startups to grow at the earliest stage, worked with some of the earliest brands like And One writing their first press release when they were five guys selling trash talk t-shirts out of the trunk of the car at, at University of Pennsylvania. And there's something really exciting about telling those stories. But the parallel for me and in your story too is, is what we do day to day in Lift Labs, which has also helped to select some of the companies that we think are going to be the next big thing in media entertainment and connectivity. And we help them to shape their brand. So I was really excited to get to meet you the first time and, and to sit down with you today. We could probably, you know, have coffee for the next few weeks. And, and uh, I think we'd find a lot of parallels between us. Oh, I have um, no doubt. <laughs> Can you talk about what Red Antler comes from? Like, where did that name come from? So naming is, I think, one of the hardest things that a new company is faced with. Certainly, we see that with our clients. And in our case, you know, because we knew that our mission was really about helping startups grow, we wanted a name that stood for growth. And when I'm trying to name things, I, I often go to Wikipedia for inspiration. It's a good way to just kind of get out of your head, get new ideas. And I somehow landed on a page that said that antlers have the fastest growing cells in the animal kingdom. Mm. So hope that's true. <laughs> Too late if it's not. Um, but we added the red to just create more visual memorability. Can we just talk about red for a minute? Because I know a lot of agencies have the name red in them. There are a lot of brands that have the color red. Why did you select red? You know, we brainstormed modifiers for antlers, and um, I think that Red and probably, you know, the other agencies with Red in their name went through a similar thought process. It's a strong color. It's a bold color. It's bright. It's positive. It's also short. Yeah. You know, and I think that makes a difference, too. We already had a two-syllable name, so like orange antler is a little bit of a mouthful, <laughs> you know. And yeah, it just sounded good, too. I mean, I think a lot of times people want sort of every element of their name to have this incredibly thought-out story. And for us, we like the sound of it. We like the look of it. And it felt like the right feeling. Terrific. Um, how should we be thinking about what a brand is beside a name? You know, for many, it might conjure up a name or thoughts of a logo or a television ad. But what does branding really mean to, to you? And Well, Danielle, I'm so glad you asked that because a name is a signifier of a brand, but it is not the brand. And I think a lot of times people confuse the expressions of a brand for a brand. So they'll say, well, I have a name and I have a logo, therefore I have a brand. When in reality, the way we think of brand starts much deeper. So what we define brand as is really what is the idea that you stand for? You know, if you really think about what's the problem that you're solving for people, how does your brand answer a need in people's lives? Like, why does this business exist? Why should people care? And then once you have a crystal clear notion of that idea, that then influences all the ways that you show up in the world. So of course, you know, what your brand stands for is going to influence how your logo looks and, and, you know, your tagline, if you have a tagline and certainly any marketing communications that you're doing, um, as well as other things like your customer service team and how they interact with people. Like that's part of your brand too. You know, all the copy on your website is part of your brand. But if it's not rooted in an idea, it just becomes a series of aesthetic choices and you might 
look good, but what you're not going to be doing is building that deeper connection because you stand for something. Great point. Your book, Obsessed, Building a Brand People Love from Day One, talks about throwing out the old rules of brand building and how they no longer apply to build a successful brand. You talked a little bit about that in your last answer, but tell us a little bit more about your thinking there. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, from the beginning of time, brands have always aimed to stand for something bigger than what they are, right? Like think about a Coca-Cola, right? It's just bubbly sugar water and it stands for happiness. Or even, you know, you can think back to like cigarette brands trying to stand for masculinity or coolness, right? So that's not a new idea. I think the difference now is that consumers have so much more choice, more information, and therefore more power than they ever had before. So they're not going to be fooled, to put it simply. You know, I think the days of like, let's tell a funny story and hope people associate it with our brand are over. I think it needs to start much deeper and really start from within and be connected to a true differentiator. You have to be really adding value to people's lives in a meaningful way and then connect that to a more emotional story. But brand can't just be a layer that sits on top because people are too smart for that and they have too much access, not only to information, but to competition. Yeah, great points. And also, you know, I'm seeing so many consumers or customers are actually helping to shape and pivot the brand at different stages. You know, it's fun to watch how the audience is really a part of the brand. Oh, that's such a good point. And I do think that, you know, this is obviously a little bit of like a cliche term, but there is a two-way conversation happening, right? I mean, consumers are able to if they're unhappy, like they can tweet about your brand for the entire world to see. They can tweet to your customer service team if they had a bad experience and everybody sees that publicly. And while that can feel like a lot of pressure, it's also an incredible opportunity for brands because you really are able to form a relationship that isn't just you broadcasting out. Yeah. And the faster you are responding and building that one-on-one -on -one relationship with a customer who has complained is really such a, a key differentiator for any company. Totally. So your book challenges some of the principles of a lean startup. And we talk about lean startup on here all the time. And we have lots of speakers coming on talking about lean startup, testing and iterating towards success. I'd actually love to hear more about your philosophy of brand early, not often. And then as sort of a follow-up to that, like at what stage of a startup do you recommend that founders think about their brand and why. So I think this has even changed over the past decade because the truth is the startup landscape has gotten so competitive. And it used to be that if you had a true product differentiator, especially on the technology side, you were onto something and you could get out there and sort of see if people respond and sort of have this, you know, early version of your brand. I mean, look at an Airbnb, right? Who had this kind of, you know, early brand and then eventually reached scale and took a new look at it and evolved their brand. And they're obviously, you know, they've been doing great. I think that now what we found is the, tech, the the barriers to launch are so much lower and so much of technology is available to everybody that within a month, we'll often meet with three founding teams who are doing almost the identical thing. Like if someone has an idea for a category that needs to be disrupted, someone else is thinking about it too. So that's one aspect, right? If you're not thinking about your brand out of the gate, you know, why is someone going to pick you over the competition that looks almost just like you and is likely saying the exact same things as you? 
The other role that I think brand can play for, you know, a freshly born startup is building trust sooner, you know, and, and avoiding what I would call a false negative. So I'll give an example. You know, we helped launch Casper. And at the time, you know, that's the mattress brand that was really one of the first brands to posit that we could sell a mattress through e-commerce. And a lot of people were incredibly skeptical about that. They were like, you can't sell a mattress online. People need to test it. They need to go to the showroom and sleep on a few and like see which one's comfortable. And, you know, mattresses are big, expensive purchases. That's not something people are just going to like take a risk on. And I think if they had not invested in brand, you know, if they put up some like half-baked version of the site just to see like, are people willing to make this purchase? No one would have plopped down $850 (laughs) from some mattress brand they never heard of with some like janky looking website. It was the brand that gave people the faith that they could actually trust this new company that they had never heard of before. So in answer to your question, I think the ideal time to start thinking about it is as soon as possible. You know, really, once you have a business plan, you should be thinking about brand and it's going to make every subsequent decision easier because really branding should be the driver force for how you even think about what features to prioritize, how to tell your story to people, even how to build a team. You know, brand can be a recruiting tool. It certainly helps with investor pitches. Yeah. And the recruiting piece is interesting. Absolutely. I know that the 100 most innovative companies comes out every year and people are scouring that looking for where do they want to work next. And it is all about the brand perception that those companies have created, whether it's big companies or startups. And Casper's interesting in that there's so many now fast followers, right? Like, there's got to be 50 new online mattress companies. More. The last time I checked, there's over 125. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's crazy. And do you sleep on a Casper, I of take it? Of course I do. <laughs> and I really love my Casper. I really do. But, yeah, I mean, look, it's a tough, tough business. And you're right. There's been a ton of copycats. And, you know, that's raised new challenges. But looking back to the early days and how they were able to get that incredible head start, you know, they knew that brand was going to be a huge part of their success. Can we just talk about the Casper brand itself and the name? Like, where did that name come from? What what was it meant to bring up in your mind? So we actually didn't come up with the name Casper. The founders had a list of like 100 names that they had been brainstorming. And I helped them go through it and identify like the lead contenders and, and ultimately decide on Casper. The goal with that business at every step was to create surprise and to sort of put something forward that was completely different than what the rest of the category was doing. So you have a lot of names in the category that sound either like faux fancy or faux technical, you know, like you've got this sort of Serta and a lot of royal imagery, and then you've got Tempur-Pedic, but there was nothing that was coming forward with something that was just friendly and human and approachable. And we loved that Casper felt like a friend, um, you know, and, and not to mention, and again, this goes back to the feel of a name. If you look at the letters of Casper, they're all very round and soft. It looks like something you might want to lay your head on. Yeah. And like hang out with Casper, the friendly ghost, right? Sure. Well, you know, it's funny <laughs> because the founders were worried about that association because you don't want to launch a brand that people immediately associate with something else. Yeah. But our feeling is, first of all, you know, a lot of people, like young people have never even heard of Casper. I certainly have. Um, But beyond that, if they were to associate, you know, he's a a cuddly, friendly, friendly ghost. He's like a sheep. (laughs) And if you're in bed and you see a ghost, you want it to be Casper. You don't want it to be anyone else. Totally agree. (laughs) How 
how should founders think about their brand in relation to today's climate during and after the current pandemics? These are very tough waters to navigate for even the most established brands. So I have a rule for our brands that existed far before the pandemic, which is that anytime you are asking for people's attention, time, click on your email in their inbox, and especially dollars, you need to be delivering value to them. You know, you can't just take, take, take. And this goes back to the point I made before about consumers having so much choice, so much power. You've got to be generous. It has to be a two-way street. And I think that that has only been heightened in the pandemic. You know, obviously there are businesses right now where they're just going to be struggling to get through this time. And it's awful. You know, you think about things like restaurants and, and even, you know, luxury fashion to a certain degree, right? I don't know about you, but I haven't worn anything other than flip-flops for, you know, three months. <laughs> I put on a dress today. Wow. You. you look great. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, putting those aside, I think for businesses that are able to operate. It's really about recognizing this is a hard time for everyone, but people are still looking for joy, fun, distraction. And I think that I'm glad we're out of that phase where every brand felt they had to send an email about how they're here for us in these unprecedented times. I feel like a lot of those emails just didn't need to get sent. And I think that now it's time for brands to focus on how they can make people's lives better for, for big reasons and small reasons. I love that point. And, you know, the same question about how companies are responding for the current calls and honestly, the systemic calls for, you know, racial justice. And I think as women, and today we're recording this as it's Equality Day, you know, from a women's perspective, gender equality, like, how do you see strong brands responding to that call? So I actually think that that needs to be put in a different category than the pandemic, because in the case of racial justice, I don't think silence is an option. I think that most brands and most people have remained silent for far too long. And this is a major issue that has been facing our country for centuries. And then I would say nearly every business in America needs to be looking inward at their own practices of hiring, inclusion, you know, who sits at the top, who gets to make decisions. So I think this is really just as much a question about sort of companies and doing the right thing as it is about brand. And I would say those two things are related. But, you know, I think when sort of the Black Lives Matter protests first started, it was very important to me to see brands speaking out. And I noticed the ones who didn't and held it against them. Um, but with that being said, I think your actions need to outweigh your words. And that's a great rule is like, you should say something if, if there's injustice being done, but you need to be doing even more than you're saying. And in this case, a lot of that work needs to start from within. You know, I don't think it's enough to just show diverse representation in advertising. It's important, but at the same time, again, in order to do that in a way that's culturally appropriate and, and moving the ball forward, you need the right people on the team, you know? So yeah, I think that this is going to be an ongoing conversation. My hope is that the pandemic is over very quickly. And my hope is that the move for racial justice is not a moment in time, but is really the turning of the tides. Absolutely. And, you know, just building on that a little bit more, can you talk about the difference for, for listeners who may not understand the difference between a brand and the call for 
visual diversity in advertising, and then what the difference is between that and what you've said, which is, you know, demonstrating the cultures behind diversity. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it all matters. Like, representation matters. And I think that the people who are in the position of, you know, casting, advertising, photo shoots, et cetera, need to be thinking about the breadth of America and like what makes, you know, what does make this country wonderful is like the wide range of backgrounds and, you know, skin color and gender identity, like all of that, right? And, and I, I really do think that we need to be reflecting that, you know, across the board in our communications. But I think that it can't just be, again, you know, going back to what we were saying in the beginning of the conversation, it can't just be at a surface level, right? Like it can't just be, oh, you know, we're going to cast like, you know, a rainbow of faces in our ads and we're all good, but we're not going to look at who sits on our board and we're not going to look at the creative team that's actually making this ad. Or, you know, if we have a team of, you know, all white people, which is incredibly common in our industry, you know, let's make sure that we're getting consumer insights from a wide range of people who don't represent us. And let's make sure that, you know, we're reflecting people in a genuine way and not just paying lip service to it. Great points. And I guess, you know, separate yet similar connected question, you know, how do you see the, the best way for brands to start and stay authentic, accountable, responsible, what are some metrics? What are KPIs that you're seeing with your customers or your clients? Yeah, I mean, authenticity is obviously like the word of the era and, you know, no pun intended, but like you can't fake it, right? Um, so to me, it boils down to walking the walk. And I think that's really what I've, you know, we've been talking about, right, for the past five minutes is that you can get out there with a message about what you believe in, but if you're not behaving that way internally, people are going to find out and they're going to call you out rightfully, you know, and I think that racial diversity is one element of that. I think that, you know, we've also seen brands recently that come forward with messages about, you know, sustainability or transparency, and then their practices are revealed to, you know, maybe not be so environmentally friendly, or maybe they're not paying their staff fairly across the board. And, you know, look, these are brands that there's a responsibility that comes with being a mission-based organization, right, is that people are going to hold you accountable. And I think it's a good thing to be out there with these messages, but it means like you, when people peek under the hood, you've got to be delivering because otherwise you're going to look like a hypocrite, which is probably like the worst thing that you could be. Exactly. I guess a personal question for you is, as a female founder and the head of a company, what are some of the challenges that you have faced in building a business and, and every day and going after new business? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I think that being a woman who is often in a room of all men, I see how these insensitive mistakes get made, right? Because people have blinders on and not even intentionally, like people with really good intentions still can't necessarily automatically put themselves in someone else's shoes, right? So I find I'm often in the position as a woman of being like, hey guys, like, I don't think we should say that. Or like, that rubs me the wrong way. Or like, that name is offensive or like whatever it might be. 
And luckily, I think I've been surrounded by men, particularly the men on my team and my co-founder, who's amazing, who are very, very open to that perspective. And the second I flag something, I'm like, I think that's sexist. Or like, I think that's an outdated view of women or gender overall. You know, people have been very responsive to that. But it shows you that like without a diverse set of voices in the room, things get missed. You know, so it's like, what what happens when I'm not in the room, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, again, if you don't have people from different ethnic and racial backgrounds in the room, like who's going to be the person that's raising their hand and like, hey, guys, maybe we shouldn't do that. And that's how we get these, you know, national TV campaigns that become a massive scandal, right? Because nobody was there to stop them. And people are just relying on stock footage and stock video, right? Exactly. And, and whatever, whoever shot that and put that together as a an idea of, you know, diversity versus culturally appropriate diversity. Exactly. That has people weighing in on that. You know, when we talk about people, what about employees and broader business culture? You, you spoke a little bit about this before, that employees, from a recruiting perspective, certainly your brand matters. You know, how do you make sure as a, as a startup founder, CEO, how do you make sure that the brand and the company culture align in an authentic way? I think it's one of the hardest challenges that we face as business owners, especially with growth. You know, I think that when we were eight people and we were all sitting around literally the same table, like literally, you know, everybody felt our purpose, right? They would hear me and my co-founder JB having conversations every day because we didn't have any doors, you know? And like, it was very <laughs> obvious, like why we exist, why we're doing this, right? Like, why are we all here? What do we believe in? What are our values in terms of how we treat our clients and, you know, form relationships and, and build ultimately build brands, which is what our business does. As we've grown, you know, it sometimes feels unnatural to codify those things, but I think it's really important and I think you have to do it, you know, and it's been a struggle for me to be like, oh, we have to write down our values. Like we have to, you know, repeat them to people, you know, and we have to train people in sort of how we make decisions <laughs> and things that feel so instinctual to us. We have to actually explain why. And like, that's been hard, but it's so important because really no matter what business you you're running, you know, your employees are your most important consumers. And if they're not living and breathing your brand values every day, why should anybody else be? Yeah, great point. And so I guess the last question before we hit the rapid fire tips and tricks section of our podcast, if you had a piece of advice to give to a startup that's getting started or even a, a more seasoned brand that's lacking the obsessed customer, what is a last minute tried and true tip for a founder trying to establish or reestablish their brand? I think it's about being crystal clear on the problem that you're solving for people and questioning your own assumptions about what that problem is. So when I meet with entrepreneurs, I always ask, like, what's the problem you're solving for people? And 99 times out of 100, without even realizing it, they answer with the solution. They'll say, oh, the problem I'm solving for people is, you know, data visibility for small businesses, or the problem I'm solving for people is, you know, a more convenient way to buy dog food. Those aren't problems. Those are business ideas, you know, and I think that what, what you really need to do is think about, you know, what's the problem I'm solving? And then keep going deeper until you go beyond the surface level and get to a core human truth because the most powerful brands tap into something greater than just like 
you know, our desire to have a cool looking pair of sneakers, right? It's like our desire to be more like a professional athlete, you know, it's like our desire to be out there being our best every day. You know, these are the brands that like people fall madly in love with and ultimately become obsessed with. And it needs to start with the people that you're trying to reach. Fantastic. All right, Emily, here's now the rapid fire tips and tricks. This is one minute. I'm just going to say something and you pick one of these two options. Okay. Do I give an explanation or just pick it? You just pick it. Okay. <laughs> so it's our little game of this or that, the brand edition. So Casper or Purple? Casper. <laughs> that was an easy one. IHOP or Waffle House? IHOP. Allbirds or Rothy's? Allbirds, also a client. <laughs> Pantene or Pros? Pros. Android or iPhone? iPhone. And karaoke or quizzo? Oh, karaoke. My favorite thing in the world. <laughs> and what's your go-to song? Jeremy by Pearl Jam. Ah, I love it. <laughs> I, I'm a Prince Purple Rain. Nice. I have a very low voice, so I'm very into like the <laughs> 90s male grunge singers. <laughs> Fantastic. When we can finally meet up in real life, we'll have to do karaoke Oh my God, day. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being our guest. Today's guest was Emily Haywood. She is co-founder and chief brand officer of Red Antler. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more info and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by Kevin Schmidlin with associate production by Catherine Nails editing and mixing by Max Graham, and theme music by The Last Generation on Film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time. <laughs>